You're smart. Your TV is smart. That's why you cut the cord. But you need one more thing. Alaska's news source. Watch live or when it's convenient for you. Here's how. Just search Alaska's news source on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire, or Android TV. Install and enjoy. It's completely free and has everything you need in one spot. Breaking news. Statewide weather. In-depth investigations. Start streaming Alaska's news source live today. Welcome to Alaska's Political Pipeline. I'm David Bernkoff. And I'm Rebecca Polsha. Today, we are going to go off format a bit, although we will be talking politics in the big picture. We're, we're going to talk politics from a different angle, not about what's happening in the legislature, potentially, or in the assembly, or on the streets, but what's happened in the past and how it affects what we do today. And we have a extraordinarily special guest. I'm so happy because I've become a big fan of the Alaska Myth podcast and Caitlin Armstrong, who is the host and producer. Caitlin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit, if we could start, about what you're trying to do with the podcast. Yeah. So the Alaska Myth is a podcast that looks at the myths that shape how Alaskans view our history, but also ourselves today. And so the podcast explores what are called settler myths. They're these very idealized and kind of romanticized ideas that a lot of Alaskans have about our history. For instance, the idea of the last frontier or the idea that Alaska was this lawless place. Um, and so every episode of the podcast is looking at a different era of Alaska's history and addressing the myths from that era, uh, kind of um, what is that history? How did it really go down? And what does that all mean today? And anyone who doesn't think that myth is important should just watch the television news or pick up a newspaper or a magazine these days to see that once again in the year 2024, we are still discussing the Civil War mm -hmm. and what the history was, why did it start. And that's all because, and I'm really going to go off on my own tangent here, but that's largely because in the years after Reconstruction, there was this mythologizing of the South, not as a slaveholding place that fought for slavery, but as a place that fought for individual and states' rights, the, the lost cause myth. And that is something that did not exist at the time. Nobody argued in 1861 what the Civil War was about. Here we are 120-something years later, and the mythology of it leads us to argue over what may have been the cause of the Civil War. So mythology affects a lot of what happens in the state houses and in the U.S. Congress, even today. And that leads me to now your podcast. So I wanted to start, I really wanted to start with... Um, you know, Alaska has a particular regional identity, maybe maybe stronger than, than other places I've been. And part of it is this idea that this was a largely empty place that brave solo settlers explored and discovered and settled. But 
that's not really the way it happened, is it? No, right. I mean, you're describing kind of the myth of the last frontier in a nutshell. Um, and what I, I think that mythology is often deployed in order to allow us to have a romantic vision of the past in order to allow us to feel better about history as it as it happened and all of the complications that it entailed and all of the violence that it entailed. And I think that's kind of exactly what the myth of the last frontier does in some ways. Um, instead of telling, I guess, the real story, which is that this is a place that uh, many Native groups of people have inhabited and stewarded and had a relationship with since time immemorial and that the arrival of settlers fundamentally and violently changed that, uh, it's, it's a lot easier and more palatable to tell yourself this story that Alaska was empty, it was this vast wilderness, uh, and it was a place that settlers came and developed and conquered. In and some made kind of, better in yes. significant ways. Yes. And how, I guess maybe this is a really big question, but all these years later, centuries later, how does that affect what happens today in this state? Well, I think what's really interesting about the myth of the frontier is that it's just all over our politics in Alaska. And as someone who has really deeply studied this, doing research for my podcast, it's a really interesting phenomenon to watch how this plays out politically. So, uh, for instance, you will often see candidates styling themselves in this frontier kind of way, using these frontier symbols in order to demonstrate that they are real Alaskans, that they're fit to lead the state. And you really see this on all sides of the political spectrum. It doesn't matter if you're if you're left or right. Don Young did this. Um, Mary Peltola does this. Uh, Al Gross attempted to do this and I think failed <laughs> miserably. Uh, <laughs> we all remember the horrific Bear the Doctor bear video. Doctor. <laughs> yeah, but if, if you look at that See, video. See, I wasn't here for oh, that. The bear, you missed that one. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the Bear Doctor video, I, I was just re-watching it in advance of this podcast and that it is exactly the myth of the frontier. It's this kind of... Um, hokey guitar stringing music and it's him commercial fishing and hunting and it's just done in such a hokey obnoxious way I think everyone up here really saw through that but I, what's interesting is that um, he, he's not the only candidate who does that I, I would argue most politicians deploy these frontier symbols in one way or another in order to build credibility with their bases. It's kind of like the second they announce that they're uh, running for office, you see the Carhartts come out and... You know, yeah, the Copper River Fleece. The Copper River Fleece, exactly. It's like you got to put the uniform on, make sure everyone knows you're from here. The camo, the, the guns. Ca uh -huh. mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me too was that I had been thinking about how you talked about how um, families introduce themselves of that I'm a third generation or a fifth generation and what you're saying when you say that to somebody I thought that was just fascinating it's just like you were trying to say I'm more of here than you are 
Right. Yeah. And that's an idea that came from one of my really brilliant guests who I who I loved interviewing, Tia Tidwell. She's a professor at UAF. Um, but she was talking about how um, this idea that you're a third generation Alaskan, a fourth generation Alaskan, a fifth generation Alaskan, people use this in order to talk about what a real Alaskan they are and how essentially how they have more credibility and more sway to be able to um, dictate the future of the state. Because Mm -hmm. like you see this all the time in um, city hall meetings, Uh, people will start off their testimony saying, this is how long I've been in Alaska. And the implication there is that the longer I've been here, the more sway what I'm saying should have. Uh, And Someone like me who's only been here a year and a half should be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) It is often used that way. Um, But I think uh, the, the irony of, you know, settlers saying, oh, I've been here five generations, my family's been here maybe a hundred years when, you know, uh, Alaska Native people have been here 10,000 years plus. Um, the, the irony is lost on on people sometimes, I think. I would love to see like the conversation, just, just thinking about this whole thing of what generation you are versus if you're Alaska Native. Like, you know, often people in their bios and stuff like that, they say like fifth generation Alaskan, but when you travel outside of Anchorage, because often it is Anchorage that you're from, um, do, would someone say it to an Alaska Native, I'm fifth generation, and be saying the same thing as to someone who maybe is new to the state of like, I am more of here than you? You know, it'd be curious to... Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Homer, and I heard a lot of that. And and you know, I mean, we're we're talking playfully about this. I have friends who are who are fourth generation Alaskans. Right. I'm not, right. um, but yeah, I mean, that's something I heard all the time in my region growing up. I would imagine that uh, in a lot of communities with significant settler populations, uh, it's it's a thing. Mm-hmm. You've spent a lot of time in your podcasting talking to Alaska Native experts as well, and historians and community leaders. How do they view people who are non-Natives who want to claim some sort of extra benefits for for being third or fourth generation? Do they ignore it? Do they laugh at it? What kind of reaction have you heard of? Well, I'll, this was something that I was very pointedly trying to ask uh, my my guests who are Alaska Native, especially in that first episode. And I kind of got the same answer from both of them, which is, well, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to quite step all the way into that <laughs> argument, because maybe it, to them it's just pointless. Like, who cares? It's so obviously not relevant to them. Maybe. I'm just guessing, but maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Well, I think it's just worth considering that, um, you know, they're going to have a very different perspective on it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, until I heard that first podcast, I had no idea about the military actions that were so common. And and there's another one spoken of later uh, against Native communities. And I don't know if uh, Alaska kids study that at all in regular history classes within the state. I can assure you that growing up in Pennsylvania, it was never discussed in any history book that I um, took uh, part in reading. But how does that 
lack of discussion of those kinds of things in the broader community affect today's politics? People don't even know about these things. Yeah, that that's a really good question. And I, I think um, I haven't really considered it a lot in terms of the politics, but I do think that these violent actions that were taken toward Alaska Native people by the military, uh, by kind of clandestine groups of settlers, if you think about uh, lawlessness and quote unquote minors justice, uh, they are written out of popular histories of Alaska. A and I think that there is this kind of Alaskan exceptionalism that people have mm -hmm. at the top. You were saying, David, that a lot of people uh, think of Alaska as this exceptional place with this distinct identity. And I think, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are distinct about Alaska, but what gets lost in that conversation is that the same processes that created the Western frontier also created our state, even if it was at a later time, even if it was in a different context, you know, there weren't quote unquote Indian wars in Alaska, but there was certainly a lot of military violence against Alaska Native people. The thing that also really sticks out to me when you're talking about, you know, the storytellers and who, who is telling the story of Alaska, um, it was so dominantly men, like so much. It, you know, I was trying to think of like, I kept listening for a woman's name and you know, and it, it, there's the time and place of the, what is happening in that time in history, but just how much it's shaped by like a, a man's point of view. Yeah, I think there very much is that whole great men of history mm -hmm. fallacy <laughs> mm -hmm. um, when it comes to popular histories of Alaska, because when you think of these figures who are glorified, who in some ways are still... Th these figures who are seen as really important and, you know, even have streets and statues and parks named after them. Uh, a lot of them are men, you know, they're your Sewards and your Mears and your Baranoffs. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I think there is a strain of that which is also related to this frontier myth. Mm -hmm. Because what's interesting about the frontier myth is that it is really fundamentally tied to this period where there was a crisis in American masculinity, actually, mm -hmm. in the late 1890s. And so um, the, the process of settling the frontier was kind of coming to a close. Uh, the frontier was declared as closed by the U.S. Census Office. Uh, there was also this rise of industrialization. And so men weren't laboring. They weren't doing this hard physical labor that they had done previously. It was more factory jobs and office work. And all this created this kind of profound crisis of masculinity mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century. And so um, knowing that the frontier myth came out of that time uh, and thinking about how the frontier myth plays out in Alaska where it's so hyper-masculine, mm -hmm. it's about the hunting and the fishing and the conquering and this almost kind of cartoonish image of masculinity. Mm -hmm. I do think that those things are related. And, and I think it also plays out in how, again, how candidates position and portray themselves. It is a lot of posturing about um, being kind of like strong men who are uh -huh. willing to stand up to, um, 
the federal Stand government. Congress. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It strikes me that it also may be partially because we're still so close to that, you know, frontier myth here. In other words, you're not going to get, if you're running for Congress in Denver, you might find a candidate who wants to touch on what it was like in the frontier, but it would be in a very hokey, different way because it's so long ago. But here, you can actually say, hey, my grandfather or my father was a settler and tell a real story about it. So the closeness, this is a weird term, but the closeness of history, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right that all of this process of settlement uh, of Alaska really wasn't that long ago. I mean, I'm from Homer and people homesteaded in Homer in the 70s, -hmm. right? You know, like after that's after my parents' generation. Um, And so I I think but I, I guess I wonder if the closeness of all of this kind of makes it difficult for us to have a perspective on it. Mm. Um, because, you know, we, we are um, hearing these stories told in some cases by the people who lived them, who had this very mythological sense of what they were doing. And so without the perspective and distance of being able to look at what happened historically. Um, maybe that's part of the reason that w- many people here are so enamored by those myths. That's, that actually strikes me, too, because I'm a, I'm a military kid, so I've moved like every two years. And one of the places that we lived was Hawaii. Um, and what struck me when I moved here was that nothing, everything was named after white men. And in Hawaii, it was very different. You know, you had to learn different street names. They were not words that you were used to. And it struck me, even when I've gone back to Hawaii, how in Hawaii there are so many more um, uh, just historical figures who are from Hawaii versus historical figures from Alaska who have things named actually named after them. Yeah, and and I would, you know, I imagine that a lot of that is a conscious choice Mm -hmm. um, because what we choose to remember about ourselves, who we choose to venerate, or, you know, these are these are all choices that are made, and, and they are made in a political context, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're made in the halls of power. Um, and so, I, I guess I would be curious, and I would imagine that there may have been some kind of movement in order to um, really venerate and uplift the Hawaiian people who made that place what it is. And I think you're starting to see some of that here, or maybe at least starting to see some of the pushback against um, just questioning who it is we want to name our our streets after, or, you know, who, who we want to uplift uh, when we're thinking about our history. Yeah. And the movement to restore original names is Mm -hmm. clearly something that I have noticed since I've been here. I don't know other people would have to decide whether this is a value or not or how much value it is, but it's at least a symbolic value. Well, it's even the naming of the Port of Alaska. Like that's a a discussion happening right now. And I would love to know actually more people's thoughts on that should be named after Don Young or should it have an Alaska native word or name you know, it's because it symbolizes, it's supposed to, you know, the biggest thing is it symbolizes it's for all of us, that we all rely on it. And so, you know, when you think of the Denina Center, I guess at the time I just assumed 
because it was under Mark Baggage, that he would name it after himself or name it after somebody within the party. And then it was called the Denina, and everybody had to learn it. And and then, and then you see the Port of Alaska, and it's you know the thought being that it should be the Don Young Port of Alaska. So it just is interesting. I'd love to hear more people's thoughts on the naming of things. Yeah, I think it is a really interesting discussion. And you know, um, when you're talking about kind of like the frontier myth and ideas about what it is to be a real Alaskan, like Don Young was such an embodiment of that frontier myth. Mm -hmm. I mean, really kind of like the good and the bad. Or, you know, he if you think about like his famously his office had yeah. hundreds of trophies or, you know, of uh, kind of like different animal heads on it. And also, you know, in his style of delivery, his kind of famous, um, just no nonsense, no BS kind of like rabble rousing mm -hmm. style of politics. Um, I think that I, I think we're in a moment where people are really questioning, is that what it means to be a real Alaskan, mm -hmm. um, because in the past, I think uh, a lot that was unquestioned. Um, and I think this debate over whether or not to name the port after him is really this kind of referendum on um, the frontier myth that he embodied in mm -hmm. many ways. I want to move on to one other little topic here that you and I discussed via email, and that is how the frontier myth, how the idea of wilderness, emptiness, and the reality of much of this state being rather empty in terms of roadways at least, how does that affect today's arguments over environmental issues and mainly mining, drilling, fishing? Because our governor at his um, press conference, his budget press conference, setting up this next legislative session said, if it's in the ground, if it's in the seas, I want to mine it. And somebody said, really? You want to mine everything? He goes, every project. If we could mine dilithium crystals, using a Star Trek reference, uh, I'd be for that. And I wonder, like, how that plays in, again, to, like, goes to the, maybe the, the gold mining uh, podcast you did that, you know, the, the result of the gold mining was a lot of environmental destruction but that's not the image that we have of it. Right. And I think that those conversations are inherently tied to the idea that Alaska is a last frontier. Because if you think about what a frontier is, it is a place that settlers are coming to that is ostensibly empty, obviously not really empty. Um, and that frontiers are thought of as places of endless resources. Mm. And the idea is that if you're able to extract those resources, then you are going to unlock the endless wealth potential of that area. And I think uh, this is a myth that in some ways has been over Alaska's head since the time that we were a territory. Um, and you see this through the way that our history is narrated. I mean, a popular history of Alaska is often told as this series of economic development projects for uh, gold, fish, oil, etc. Um, and so I think, you know, the governor or any other politician who's saying that 
what we need to do is just develop everything, extract everything, mine everything. Uh, it's based on this implicit idea that all you have to do is go get the resources out of the ground, and that's going to unlock this uh, endless potential of wealth that will benefit I think the state. he almost literally said that. <laughs> and I, it was a question about Again, to bring it to today, it was, well, you had mentioned a state sales tax because revenues are down from oil and mining. Are you still in favor of a state sales tax? And he said, well, we wouldn't need a state sales tax if we just did more drilling. So he presented it as the drilling saves us. That's And that's exactly the idea. And I think what is interesting about Alaska, and this is something that I was discussing with one of the guests on this episode, Catherine Morse, um, we're actually going to release a bonus episode about this um, this month. She was talking about how Alaska is stuck in the myth of the big strike in some mm -hmm. kind of ways, but unlike other frontier states, that wealth has never fully been realized. And there's this idea, again, said by the governor and by many people before him, it's a very old idea that the promises of statehood have been denied to Alaska. And what they mean by that is that if we had been given the opportunity to develop all of these resources at the time that we came, became a state instead of all of this money being owned by the federal government, then we would be able to fulfill our potential. Mm -hmm. Then we wouldn't be having budget revenue problems, et cetera. Or the way California did. Nobody stopped them from drilling or, or mining or anything. And now all of a sudden, big old Uncle Sam is saying, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> I have one more thing. You may have other things you want to talk about. <laughs> Do you have anything else? I can talk all day, so I need to be. <laughs> uh, this, was, this is a kind of wrap-up question. When you discuss mythology and breaking apart mythology to, I'm sure you see this as educate people about reality, do you get pushback from people saying, why are you doing this? Leave well enough alone. Why are you? That is good. We are, we are not always the most self-reflective <laughs> state. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, to be completely honest, I was expecting pushback. Um, but the feedback that I've gotten about the project so far is that it's really interesting and educational. And so it, it could still be to come, who knows. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it is touchy territory <laughs> when you start to unravel people's deeply held beliefs about themselves, um, their state identity, their national identity. I guess one last thing to focus <laughs> in on identity. Is there, is there a plus side to having a mythology and an identity that is, I don't know, maybe more libertarian, more do for yourself, more... We know how to fix it. We don't need other people. Is there any upside to the mythologies that we have? Well, I think that it kind of just depends on who you ask. Like, honestly, uh, I think there might be people that you talk to about this who say, like, it's it's all upsides and all of this other negative stuff. It, it's in the past. What importance does that have today? Or, you know, because these mythologies enable you know, my own sense of self-sufficiency or 
um, uh, uh, you know, give me the freedom to do the kinds of things that I that I want to do. I think um, what's interesting about the frontier myth or manifest destiny is that there, in some ways, there are kind of two sides to it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm loath to say that, um, but you know, I guess like the there are people that these mythologies do fundamentally and deeply benefit. They deeply benefit settlers. Um, that, but that happens at the expense of indigenous people, at the expense of, um, you know, historically non-white settlers. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I guess um, every, everything, there, there are many sides to everything. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how to find your podcast. Yeah, so we're the Alaska Myth. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you have a lovely website too, don't you? We do, thealaskamyth.com. All righty. <laughs> Perfect. Rebecca, yes. this was a good one. Yeah, well, I'm, this is fascinating. We have to do more interviews. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you. And as always, feel free to provide feedback maybe you'll send us criticism for her podcast that would be (laughs) all the bad stuff can come to us and you can be inoculated against it continuously (laughs) 